0: Trading, not episode 49. We like narratives as human beings. We love stories. We love a theme. We love a linear relationship from one thing to another. And this comes out all the time. If you listen to any financial publications, financial news, financial television, they will often say the market is up because of... The market's going to do something. Your job is not to fight it. The market
1: never, ever runs away. It's always there.
0: That personal diary of trading
1: What's up, traders? Welcome to the 49th episode of the Trading Up Podcast. And you know what? I've just realized last week's episode was a year. It was basically just over a year since we launched on the 5th of September 2018, the Trading Up Podcast, after it was rebranded from the 52 Traders Podcast, what you can tell from that is there's probably been about four weeks where you haven't had an episode because we had 48, 52 weeks in a year, and uh, we we skipped a couple here or there just to to uh, give myself a little bit of a break here and there. So, folks, uh, we've done one year of, of I was going to say 52 traders, of Trading Nuts podcast. So I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for making this well, giving me motivation to carry on with this, and uh, and really um, bring as much insight and market knowledge to you listeners out there as I can each and every week with interesting traders and uh, and what they have to share. And I tell you what, I've liked most about this is jumping on the YouTube videos after the sh- after I do my little. Um, podcast interview, getting the guys to walk through a price chart. Some of that stuff is absolutely gold. So if you haven't seen that yet, jump onto the YouTube channel and and take a look at the mini courses. I think I've called the mini courses over there. So there's a playlist already. Go and have a look at the old ones. We've actually got one coming up with this episode today with David Keller. Now, uh, David's a stock trader from the US. Look, we've had a couple of stock traders recently. Um, But what you find is that you know, If you're looking for long-term investments and you're not a stock trader, but you trade something else, Forex, futures, whatever, then there's some great advice in here for where you want to, I suppose, how you want to maybe approach investing. So guys, we've got a fantastic interview here with David in a second. But before we do that, I just want to go over a quote that I saw today and leave you pondering it before we get into it, because I thought it was quite good. And it relates to us traders out there. So here's it. here it is. And um, it's from the, the late Mark Douglas. So uh, it goes like this. There are only two types of traders with the potential to succeed. The first type are those who are consistently profitable and seek fine tuning. The second type are those traders who are absolutely desperate in their desire to, for consistency because they've yet to achieve it. Everybody in between doesn't have a chance. Where the determination lies the way you can be found. So guys, where are you on that scale of seeking consistency? Are you already there, profitable, looking to fine tune? Or are you have you got a very strong desire to be consistent versus anything else? And uh, I suppose being determined is the way forward. So where are you guys? If you're not on that spectrum, then what does he say? You haven't got a chance. All right. So on that note, let's get on with the interview with David. Enjoy. But David Keller here on the show from Sierra Alpha Research. Now, uh, David, welcome to the show. Uh, um, so you're over there in Seattle, um, not Washington, is it Seattle, Washington?
0: It is, yeah, Washington oh, yeah. State in the, in the Pacific Northwest here.
1: I always get confused with the Washingtons and uh, <laughs> where it sits in the in the U.S. Yeah, so, of um, course. so today, we, so, so we got a slightly, I suppose, different interview from what the listeners might be used to here on Trading Night. I'm not going to go through all my questions. In the sequential order that I sometimes do, we're going to jump around a bit because you've got quite a bit of experience in the, uh, I suppose, the world of the financial markets and uh, it's unique to what a lot of my other guests typically bring to the show. But before we get into that, I want to start off by learning a bit about you, how you got into uh, the world of finance, trading and um, yeah, starting way back in the beginning and, and moving forward through your career.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, and Cam. Listen, it's such a pleasure to be on with you. I'm, I've, I've uh, enjoyed read, listening to some of your, your previous interviews. So thanks for, for what you're doing with uh, with trading. That I'm I'm enjoying it. Brilliant. Um, so so my background, I have the very I guess non traditional background. I, I actually studied music and psychology as an undergraduate uh, at Ohio State. Uh, you know, in the in the Midwest of the U.S. And, uh, and it's funny at the time I did not realize it was a great uh, educational platform to launch into a career in finance but it's actually served me pretty well uh, and the reason is because music if uh, you know any of your listeners that are musicians there's a very mathematical relationship to you know to sounds and what sounds good and, and combining different notes and different patterns and so for me studying patterns in music and you know, learning, conducting and things like that actually helped me uh, the first time I saw a price chart and saw that I was looking at all of the indicators and seeing what patterns emerged and using my knowledge of market history to know what was going to come next. The moment I saw that that was something you could do, it, it just clicked with me. I felt felt like I was I was somehow trained for it as a musician. And then psychology, I've used a great deal, you know, studying just how people think. And, and so a lot of my uh, career has been aimed more toward the behavioral finance side, thinking Really thinking about how people think and unpacking some of the, you know, decision-making challenges that people have with their investments. And so I, I actually, in the you know, entered right into the financial industry. I started working with Bloomberg uh, in New York, and so I had a couple roles, but I settled in as the technical analyst there. And so covered accounts in North and South America, and essentially traveled around to institutional investors, buy side firms, sell side firms. So you know, a currency trading desk in New York down to a two-person uh, you know, investment advisory shop in uh, in Detroit, and then down to Bogota, Colombia, to you know, to talk with equity investors there, and and so got to learn a lot about what caused people to make buy and sell decisions. You know, using charts, using technical analysis, using investor sentiment, uh, and then from there in 2008, I actually moved up to Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, took on a role as a director of research at Fidelity Investments and so uh, ran the technical research team and one of the other uh, analyst groups. And so we worked with actually all the equity portfolio managers that run the, the equity mutual funds and, uh, and essentially helped them identify buy and sell decisions across the equity universe. And in covering equities, we sort of covered all different asset classes. And it was really more long-term investing, thinking about long-term trends, secular movements, and assets. But, you know, in the day-to-day movements, there was a lot about the short-term fluctuations and how they relate to – Uh, the long term trends. And then about two and a half years ago, I actually switched gears and launched my own firm called Sierra Alpha Research. Um, And I work with institutional investors uh, and and financial advisors and actually more and more some educational uh, content for individual investors thinking about, you know, sort of that combination of behavioral and technical inputs, why we make certain decisions with our investments, how to, you know, sort of correct for some of the challenging uh, decisions we can make, but then also using technical analysis as an actionable toolkit to, to identify opportunities and, and manage risk. So that's my that's my quick summary of where I've come from.
1: Cool. And look, I mean, I think way back when you were in Bloomberg is an opportunity that a lot of the guys listening to the show, including myself, would love to have had, where you got to go and meet all these you know different key players in the financial markets i mean can you tell us anything about like for example some of the institutional firms that you visited um any insight that you had any little stories or nuggets
0: of course uh so one that i've i've loved telling people is uh one of the first times i went down to some of the fx trading desks in new york city so is one of the larger trading desks and if you've you know if you've never been there, there are these warehouse warehouse sized rooms filled with just rows of desks with people trading different assets, different uh, currency pairs. And so I was walking down the currency desk and my role at the time as a technical analyst was to meet with all of our clients, which were all, you know, the traders and help them incorporate charts more into their decision making. So see how they were using technical indicators and and help sort of refine, make make better decisions, maybe tweak their process a little bit. So as I'm walking down meeting people, I all of a sudden noticed this one uh, person's desktop this guy's sitting there and i look and he has four screens in front of him so just this cockpit of information and as i'm looking he probably had 60 to 70 different technical indicators on his screen at the same time i'm talking the most complicated you know busy all these colors all these lines and i'm looking at this and i sat there for like five minutes watching him trade and i'm thinking how is he you know how is he making sense of this, this is amazing So I finally introduced myself. I say, you know, hi, my name's Dave. I'm a a technical analyst. You you know, what you're doing is incredible. Can you just, you know, give me a sense of what you're doing? How are you doing this? And he said, yeah, I have absolutely no idea what any of that stuff means. (laughs) He said, but the head of the desk walks by and says, look at that guy. He's all over the markets. He's on top of it. So it was a great lesson in that if you want to impress people with how complicated you can make things and all the eye candy, all the busyness, Um, You know, you can make things way too complicated. But in terms of actually making money with charts, with technical analysis, or I would argue with most of your investments, uh, simple is what works. And having something that's simple, that's repeatable, that's robust, I think stands the test of time. And so I've used that as a as a reminder not to overcomplicate and not to put so much in front of you that you're paralyzed and you can't make good
1: decisions. And so, so was this guy actually, like, when you were watching him trade, I mean, was he doing anything or just sitting there looking at the screen? I mean, was he so placing what, buy as, and sell orders within that five-minute period? He was.
0: And what's funny is as I unpacked what he was actually doing, there was a small corner of the screen with one or two indicators, and that's what he was actually looking at to make his decisions. Uh, the rest was just up there as the, as the window dressing. So when anyone walked by, they would be you know, overwhelmed with how on top of things he was with, with all, the, uh, all the signals and such.
1: Ah, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. And what about what about some like? Did you learn anything out of all that in terms of sort of fundamental? Like, man, if I if, if people knew this, then that would really unlock a lot of the game for them.
0: It's a really good question, and you know, I was very fortunate as you as you suggested. I mean, getting to see a lot of different types of firms and and people running different, you know, money in different ways uh, from large institutions, uh, you know, running billions of dollars down to small operations and, you know, and, and even people like, you know, at the top of Tudor Investments, you know, met Steve Cohen and, you know, getting to sit down with guys like that and actually ask questions about their process was really, really, you know, formative for me. And, and you know, if there's one takeaway I had, and I think what led me to the value of, of thinking about behavioral finance is that as much as some of those really, Tenured, really successful investors—you feel like they have all the answers and they don't have any of the issues that you might face as an individual trader. I will tell you, hundred percent of the time, that the people that are managing a lot of money and people that have a lot of responsibilities are, are struggling with a lot of the same things that you might be managing your own portfolio. The number of zeros might be different, the responsibility level might be different, but in the end, it's all the same decisions that they're that they're making. And you know, guys like like Steve Cohen and, and others that I met with, I think the the simplicity with which they looked at price action and just try to think about how are they trying to win, and then just repeat that as much as possible. So for someone like that, it was mean reversion and looking at short-term movements and you know selling high and buying low, but finding a consistent way on a certain time frame to do that in a repeatable fashion. That was the game for him, and it wasn't trying to complicate it by being something you're not. It was focusing on your plan, focusing on how you're trying to win, and then make that a consistent routine. Um, and so, you know, with a lot of my clients now, I we use the r- word routine often because it's everything from what's the first thing you look at when you log in in the morning and bring up your account or bring up, uh, you know, a, a charting platform, whatever it is. What's the first thing you look at? What's your process for going through the steps to get sort of on top of what's happening? I always call it the morning coffee routine. And I find that those investors, the guys that I met with that I really was impressed with. Their performance and their and their routines. That that's what they had. They had a solid, consistent routine, and they followed it religiously. And so, you know, with a lot of my clients, we try to try to use that sort of thinking and help build good habits that you can consistently do. That that's what I found brings investors success uh, consistently.
1: So when you were when you're on these floors and and going through these institutions, I mean, did you did you pick up any sort of, especially with your background in, in behavioral finance, did you pick up any sort of I suppose, psychological traits that were being, you know, I suppose, shared through what people were doing on the floor or was it just like a normal office? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we so, can't really tell.
0: Yeah, yeah so two, two things I would say. I You know, on a trading floor especially, um, you know, they, and, and again, you you compare that to like a hedge fund, which tends to be very secretive. It was very difficult at a place like a tutor or something to really understand what all different groups were doing because it, it, it's all behind closed doors, all kept very private. But on the trading floors, you had the benefit of hearing really the open outcry system at work. I mean, hearing you know traders and salespeople interacting, hearing people call out levels, and you could feel the mood rise and fall based on what was happening uh, with the markets. And also, I mean, I, I was able to spend time on the on the, the, the trading floors in Chicago, so the, the CME, the CBO, the, the Options Exchange. Uh, and, the, and the CME, the Futures Exchange, and and you could again, you could feel the volume rise and fall as the volatility increased and decreased. And you know, it's it's unfortunate. I think for a lot of people, they missed that. Now that the you know a lot of the floors obviously have gone electronic, and we've gotten away from that, there's a signal that was there, just feeling that momentum and feeling think, you know panic increase and decrease. I think I think we're we're missing that. And and again, a lot of the technical approaches I think people try to try to use correctly are, are trying to capture that, quantify that in a, in a way that maybe, you know, would, would replace what you, what you would see from the crowd. But I, you know, if there's one personality trait or something that I found a lot, I would, I would probably bucket it mostly under overconfidence, which is, you know, especially professional investors, you are, you are taught from the beginning to have an opinion, to take a, take a position or make a recommendation and then pound the table, dig in your heels. And, you know, your job is to convince others that you're correct. And so as a result, when it's proven by some market action or, or whatever that that position is no longer correct, you're, you've, you've convinced yourself that you're right. You're sort of overconfident. You have this, uh, you know, this, this bravado with, with which you're approaching your, your role or approaching your, your book. And as a result, you tend to overplay things. You tend to stay way too long in something that's no longer working. Um, because of that that confidence or what I, what I would say the overconfidence. So, you know, one of the ways that I try to help people avoid that, especially professional investors, is, you know, having an evidence-based process. And what that means, I mean, you, you would argue everyone should have that, whereas instead of defining your position, defining your process based on your preconceived notions, uh, your preconceived biases, what you want to happen, what you wish should happen, really focusing your process on gathering evidence, gathering information. So, you know, having a dashboard of sorts, having a process with which you can identify when the environment has changed and have as, as emotionless as possible of a way of signaling to you when you're on the wrong side of something. And the quicker, the more quickly you can recognize that and take action, that's what I think prevents you from, you know, more, more significant risk and significant loss.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to jump back just to Ted. And then we'll jump forward again to what you've just talked about because um, I want to ask a, quite a detailed question. It's something you might not remember, but so you mentioned that, you know, these guys were calling out levels. Now, did that seem to be, um, and it's probably really testing your memory here, but was it like a bunch of people calling out different levels or was it like one person calling out a level that everyone was following or how did how did that work?
0: Well, I think it's a really good question. And I would say that, you know, so this is maybe early 2000s that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of those experiences would have happened, uh, you know, going on those trading floors. And I would say at that point, you know, this was, you know, early after decimalization had happened in in U.S. equities. So, you know, it was still kind of being tested and there was a lot of change that the euro had just come out at the end of the 1990s and the 2000s. So that was still kind of evolving. So the dynamics of the market uh, uh, were still sort of changing. This was you know, maybe up to and, and after nine eleven. So it was, a, it was a very volatile period in terms of rapid change in the structure of the market. And so I think a lot of people were still very old school in terms of thinking of specific price levels. And if you think about it, I mean, if, if stocks are trading on eights, there aren't that many levels. So between $70 and $71, there are only eight points that you can be at, and then you're at the next level. Now with decimalization and, and then subdecimal trading, right? Sub trading on stocks, you know, specific levels I, I found are less and less meaningful. And so when I'm talking to investors now, we talk less about a price level, something's going to hit this specific price level. And then that has meaning it's more support ranges or resistance ranges, right? There's a range at which you would expect buyers and sellers to come in or expect there to be an inflection point because you know things are moving at such small you know such small intervals that they can fluctuate a lot you know second to second and even sub second so at the time yes i remember people you know scrambling for levels at what what's the line in the sand that we should be looking for and so most you know desks that i saw there would be a desk analyst someone who was a a chart aficionado right the chart guy who would be able to look at the at the short term chart look at the 1 minute candle chart and be able to identify yep this is the level look for this and if it breaks that uh, you know we're done um I you know, again, I found more and more. I think that you have to become a little softer in terms of specific price levels in my experience, just because of the, the nature of how things are trading now.
1: Okay, cool. And and so jumping forward again into that evidence based approach, mm-hmm. I mean, did you have you had any experience with, you know, giving this advice to people uh and and sort of seeing them try and implement it but not do a good job? <laughs>
0: Certainly, Cam, none of my clients, I can assure you, no. Um, right. Uh, no, it, it is very challenging. And, and it's funny, it's, it's there's no it's no coincidence that the, the first step in any sort of 12 step program of recovery starts with admitting that you have a problem. And I would say that for most investors, most traders, especially individuals it's, and, and, and professionals as well, I think that's what is most challenging. Right. When you when you think about decision making, when you think about what co- might be causing you to make a poor decision at times, you have to first admit that you're not perfect and that you're imperfect and that you are not capable of making 100% the right choices. And, you know, again, if you, you know, if you think on the institutional side, a, a pretty capable institutional investor is correct directionally on a stock just over half the time. We found, you know, over time 53 to 55% is pretty good. Which means forty-five to forty-seven percent of the time you're going to be wrong, and so the game is about recognizing that you're not. And, and it's not just decision making; it's also just that the market will move in, in a way that's that's contrary to how your your position. But that is something you have to be aware of and accepting of. Um, so, yeah, there, and I would say there are it, it's a spectrum of certain qualities or certain behavioral tendencies that people are more or less willing to sort of get rid of. Um, I would say one of the toughest. Uh, is confirmation bias, which, which many of your listeners might might already be familiar with, but but if not, it's essentially this, right? So if you're thinking of the U.S. markets, you know, it, you know, recording this at the beginning of September, you know, the market's sort of been range bound for the last uh, three or four weeks, up, and now at the upper end of that range. But the question is, you know, is this a new leg down we might see for the S and P, or is this the beginning of uh, of a rally back to the previous highs? And that's the real question. Uh, but what you don't want to do is say. I am bullish on stocks, and I think we're going to go back up to the highs from the end of July. And then you start to look at the evidence, and anything that is bullish and confirms your bullish view, you sort of you know, acknowledge that. And anything that's more negative or more contrary to your position or your view, you sort of mentally push it aside. And as a result, all you do is you've had a preconceived idea, I'm bullish, and then all you're doing is looking at evidence and mentally acknowledging the things that support your view and all you're doing is doing what you would have done. Anyways, you're not really paying attention to the evidence. So what I try to get people to do, and and I would say the way you fight that is by making it very manual. I actually get people to write it out on a piece of paper as much as possible. Here is your checklist. And once you have answered these eight questions, you have earned the right to decide whether or not this market or this position or this stock is bullish or bearish. And it's, you know, from a technical perspective, what are the moving averages doing? What key price levels are we near? You know, where are we at or near a 52-week high or low? What is, you know, what are other stocks doing? And, and sort of this list of questions, how is it doing relative to its peers? And once you've answered those questions, then you look at that as a mosaic and you take the weight of that evidence and say, is this evidence I've just looked at bullish or bearish? Okay, it's bearish. Now, how does that compare to how I'm positioned or what my view is right now? And do I need to make some changes to my view or changes to my position? And it's very hard for people to do that because, Going into the trading day, you know how your position. You usually, know what you want to happen or what you think might happen, and as a result, it very quickly clouds your ability to bring in the uh, to bring in the information. So that one is is a, is probably the toughest one to unpack. And again, my my goal with people is try to make it manual. Really, write out here's what I think. You know, here's what I'm seeing, and then conclude a an opinion or conclude a position after that 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 gathering of information.
1: So the, the the key tip here, guys, is to to write it out. To write out what you're seeing. Which and then look, this makes so much sense when I sort of reflect on some of the stuff I've done in the past. Like where I've had a position and it's gone into it's gone against me. And this is like where I've been moving stops and all that sort of stuff. You know, not good trading whatsoever. But <laughs> I obviously had a bias in one direction, and then. I was seeing all this evidence that was showing me that it was going in the opposite direction yet still the bias was so strong that I was trying to come up with like anything that was going to stop this, this price move (laughs) and it just didn't happen until you get to the point where you just can't face it anymore and you close out. And then it obviously, you know, traces back in your direction as, as we all know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Ned Davis, who some of your listeners might know, he's a, uh, a a long-followed uh, analyst runs a firm based out of Florida here in the US and uh when I when I met him years ago he shared at a at a dinner the quote all large losses begin as small losses <laughs> and that's such a great thing to keep in mind if you can you know again the the key to preventing a climactically large painful loss uh destruction of capital is to limit it when it's still a small loss and so as you mentioned you know when you put on a position just the simple exercise of saying Here's my position, and if X Y Z happens, I'm going to revisit it. No questions asked. It's happening. Setting an alert, setting a trigger, a trailing stop, and just automating it from the beginning. That simple task can can alleviate a lot of the challenge that you just described, which is you know trying to justify a losing position as it's getting more and more painful, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I can just picture those wicks sort of going against me now and hitting levels and going, oh yeah, yeah that. That these works sometimes fail, and you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so what about other other? So that's the confirmation bias, sure. uh, which I think is a, a good one for everyone to remember and to remember to write stuff down to to make sure you're not you haven't got a bias on one direction or another. Are there any other biases out there that that might be affecting investment and trading decisions?
0: Absolutely, one. I, I would say another one that comes to mind immediately based on on the story you just shared was is endowment bias or the endowment effect. And if you're not familiar with this, it's essentially where, um, uh, and and listen, I should qualify these by, you know, it's very easy when you start talking about behavioral biases and decision making to think that we're all messed up and it's hopeless. And I would say it's not. There are actually some things that humans actually do very well, and maybe if we have time, we can... We can talk about that, but so I don't mean to make it so negative that this is hopeless and that you're you're wired to make all these bad decisions. Um, but there are obviously certain things that we run into, and, and and endowment bias is the next one, and that's essentially where we treat things we own differently than we treat things we don't own. So you know, a stock that is in my portfolio, I own Home Depot, which is a you know a home improvement retailer here uh, based in the U.S. Um, and now that I own that stock, I think of it differently. I don't think of it as a Company, I don't think of it as a, a a series of price data. It's mine. It's my baby, right? It's my it's something that I own. And as a result, I am hesitant to get rid of it when I probably should, um, because I you know it's mine. How could I get rid of Home Depot? It's been such a great stock for me. I've had such great luck with it. I've had great returns. You know why could why would I sell it now? It's you know this happened last time, um, and so what you what that, that's not what you want to do. You want to think of your positions as not. Something you own, but I, I, you want to think of positions as something you're renting, um, right? So when you when you buy a stock, you're not owning it; you're actually renting it. Now, to be totally clear, you know you do own the stock; you have responsibilities as a shareholder. Totally fair. I don't I don't mean to to dispute that. But in terms of how you think about your positions, you should think of it less as you own it and more like you rent it. And the reason why I say that is because by renting it, you can very easily close that out with no harm, no foul, no, no love lost, uh, you know, get it, get it off your, off your plate and move on to, uh, to some better opportunity. What you don't want to do is think of your positions and having an emotional attachment to them because when they start performing poorly, you, you resist the, the urge to sell them because you have this, this pull to to hold on to things way too long. And the same, that's, that's another reason why a lot of times People will hold on to positions way too long, even after they've been winning. So instead of taking profits when it might be an opportune uh, moment, we've reached a price target. We've hit resistance, something that would tell you maybe I should take some of it off the table. We hold on to it because it's been so good. And again, it's my baby. I I can't get rid of it. And you want to, again, go back into going back to an evidence based process. Look at the data, look at the evidence. And if you see indications that you should be making a change, don't be afraid to do that and don't use an emotional attachment to, to be a part of that
1: decision. And what about, uh, so is it, is that more aligned to things that you're buying as opposed to or going long on versus shorting? I
0: think you could do, no, I think you could do it both ways. And and again, we, we tend to phrase it in the, in the form of a long position. It's something you own, but I think also with the short position, right? So, or even with the currency pair, you're married to that position, yeah. you're married to that point of view, you're married to that specific, you know, outcome. And then when the evidence tells you different, you, you decide not to take action because you're sort of married to that. You're, you're wedded to that. You own that position or that, uh, that
1: idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, so it's almost like if you, if you're having, you know, you've had four losers and you finally get one good winner and you're like, this is the, this is the trade I've been after. I like, I own this trade. (laughs) That's where you get to trouble where you forget that this is just one of many trades that you're going to do, be doing over your, your trading career. Right. That's right. Yeah. righty ho What about, uh, so you mentioned a couple of others, so you got one more bias there?
0: Yeah. The next one that I would say that comes to mind that we haven't spoken about is the narrative bias, uh, which is, I would argue, one of the more commonly seen ones. And it's sneaky because it, it comes in a lot of ways. It's not just with your investment decisions with your with your trading, but it's also with with all the decisions you tend to make in life and it it goes back to how we how we're wired and narrative bias is essentially we like narratives as human beings we love stories we love a theme we love a linear relationship from one thing to another and this comes out all the time if you listen to any financial publications financial news financial television they will often say the market is up because of XYZ. You know, banks are down because of the yield curve. Markets are down because of inflation worries. It's up because of uh, China trade talks. There's always a direct relationship attributed from one movement to one fundamental or macroeconomic or, or technical factor. Um, and so that narrative is what we sort of develop in our mind. Either, either someone tells us through financial media, here's what's happening and why where we create our own narrative, okay, the yield curve is flattening, that means this is what's going to happen to interest rates, this is what's going to happen to banks, this is what's going to happen to my position in key corp. And all of a sudden, you you develop this whole narrative. But the problem with that is that nothing like that happens in a vacuum, right? The markets are not a simple mechanism with a couple of things in line that that move perfectly It is a complex mechanism, right? So there are all sorts of things that could drive an asset price at any moment and any day and any week. And while there are China trade talks happening, there's also the yield curve and there's Brexit and, you know, just pure sentiment and all of these things that could compel different people or different combinations of people to buy and sell on any given day. So if you, if you get married too much to a narrative, you will be caught off guard when that narrative does not play out correctly. Um, So what you want to do is don't get too focused on a specific, linear outcome don't you know if you read financial news and it tells you x is happening because of y i think you always want to have a a healthy dose of skepticism to that and again I, i think that's one of the values um if you're using charts as a trader if you're looking at price data because you cannot deny the price right this this shows you how people are coming together buyers and sellers coming together and agreeing on a price at a certain moment that is not restatable that is undeniable that is what's happening And so in terms of measuring sentiment and understanding relationships, the charts are what will tell you what the relationship is and how that's changing. The narrative is what will become clear well after the fact, right? A year from now, we will know why gold went up in a certain way and how Brexit impacted the the pound and other markets. All of that becomes clear in the rearview mirror. But looking forward, it's all about the data. It's all about, you know, for me, it's about the charts and the price action and what's moving. And the why is something that you can speculate on, but that narrative, that why tends to, um, be much more clear down the road. So for, for, for your listeners, that are more, you know, trading oriented, which I I think most of, most of you will be then I I think, you know, a a healthy focus on the price itself and on the movements in the price and on the relationships between different markets and less on a particular narrative, I think is going to serve you very, very well.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned gold there, like (laughs) just even this week, somebody said to me, uh, like gold's going to shoot to whatever it was. And I was like, after it had massive, massive run up already. And then I was like, oh, okay. Um, cause I can see it. I can see it going down yeah. anyway. And then, then it goes down and then it's like, there it, go. it went down. It went down like 200 points. And then I was like, hang on a sec. I thought you said it was going up. He's like, it was a good, it was, this guy was a good trader. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I meant it was going up. It was going up in the long term, not, not tomorrow. And it's like, oh, you, and I just, I made a note to myself. I'm like, do not listen to anyone because you've got to make, you've got to do your own work because it's just, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Even if they do know what they're talking about, you don't know in what context. Yeah, Um, that's
0: right. And I think, and and to be clear, I, you know, I, you know, I do a lot with financial media and go on, go on television and and things. And I, you know, I think there is a place for things like that in your process. I don't mean to say, turn it off and don't pay attention to others, because I think there's a lot to be gained from learning how other people are approaching things and how they might be positioned and and why, how they're thinking about, uh, you know, positioning. Um, So I think there's value there, but I would never think of it as a, you know, as a recommendation. Oh, I should do this because, Gold's a safe haven. Yep, it should be going up right now. I would take that to as a, as a, um, as a way to, to consider your own process, right? How are they going about it? How are they coming to that conclusion? Interesting. How does that relate to how I might be positioned? How might I approach this market a little different? What signals could I look for to validate that? And, and if you do it in the right way, I think it can be additive to, to your process for sure.
1: Now, now what about... Sort of merging or melding together the uh, the technical analysis and, and behavioral finance to, sure. to to manage risk in your portfolio i mean what what would you recommend
0: sure so you know for me technical analysis has always been you know less about you know identifying the next home run, identifying the next ten bagger the next stock that's going to go up exponentially and it's more about managing risk um, and and I and again, I think that goes to a lot of the behavioral biases we've talked about. A lot of the challenges you have with behavioral finance or decision making is being, you know, being caught on the wrong side of something because you're not able to take the emotional uh, angle out of the out of the picture, and, and you're not relying on the data. So, what's great about charts is that you can have very clear signals, very clear levels at which you agree to revisit something, right? So, you know, you're positioned a certain way, and, and so for me, when I'm looking at a market and I see All right. The S&P 500 potentially breaking out. If this happens, then I you know, it is a bullish configuration. I have to be long. But if it hits this level, if it goes back to this point, this previous low, this support level, this moving average, whatever your discipline would be, um, you know, that's the level at which the trigger occurs. Right. And so it's not an emotional decision. It's more of a quantifiable, repeatable Um, uh, decision right basing based on the price data uh, itself so for me behavioral finance the the idea of behavioral decision making and behavioral uh, concepts like that are are the way of describing why you make decisions in a certain way in my opinion technical analysis is a way to practically apply that knowledge and have a bring greater discipline to um, to your investment process so you know, identifying clear signals, clear levels at which you, you, you may need to revisit a current position.
1: Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to slightly divert the conversation and just want to get your view. And I ask all my guests this, get your view on cryptocurrencies at the moment. What are your, what are your sort of high level thoughts?
0: Absolutely. So as a behavioral finance aficionado, I have to say that, that the um, you know, the uh, the growth in cryptocurrency investing and, and trading and the more and more people that are involved in it is fascinating from a behavioral perspective, because it's, you know, most markets, when you're looking at equities, you're looking at the chart of Microsoft. There is a deep fundamental data on this company. There's a lot of understanding about the long term prospects and the growth and, and, and windows and the different product lines and how that all has evolved. So the technical inputs looking at the price data is just one piece. You also have this much. Bigger piece about the company and the management team and the earnings growth and, and trajectory and so forth. With with cryptocurrencies, you you don't have a lot of that, right? There's very little uh, ability to make a fundamental argument. But you know, besides again, big picture, you know, the the changes in in payment processing and and. The, you know, blockchain and how that technology obviously could become, you know, could proliferate. That's that's a whole separate thing. But in terms of valuing a cryptocurrency based on fundamental data, it's pretty limited at this point, uh, and, and arguably could could always be. So as a result, it is more of a pure read on uh, on investor uh, psychology. It's it is a you know I, I think future books on manias and panics and crashes will include you know Bitcoin as an example of of how things evolve and how quickly they can. Uh, they can fluctuate and and uh, and so forth. Um, so for me, you know, I, I think the, the value in it is that it is a um, uh, can be a very technically oriented uh, market, which is which is pretty cool. Um, you know, in terms of where, where I see it, you know, I for me, I'm always looking at how uh, something like Bitcoin, if it's the widest, you know, m- m- most widely followed price series, um, you know, where it is relative to where it's been, and the more price data that has come out, the more we've seen how this market evolves the more we can see how certain price levels have meaning and have memory and where people might be, uh, be more and more interested or less interested in it. Um, and for me, I, I tend to keep things very simple. So I tend to like markets when the trend is going higher. I tend to not like markets where the trend is going lower. And you suppl- simplistically measure that based on the highs and lows, the peaks and valleys in the price. You know, When the market goes higher, are we achieving higher highs? Or when the market goes lower, are we achieving lower lows? And just looking at that simple relationship over time will tell you overall the trend that we see in, the, in these markets. So something like Bitcoin, and, and again, the, the, the series I, I've tended to look at the GBTC, which is a, you know a Bitcoin trust, which isn't a perfect proxy for Bitcoin, but but not too bad in terms of, of seeing the price levels. And you know, from a long term perspective, you've seen this rounding uh, bottom, you've seen this accumulation as the as the price is appreciated. But in the last couple months sort of entering in the summer here in the U.S., it's been, uh, you know, it's hit a resistance level and it's sort of come down and now range bound and sort of at the middle middle end of that. So you would want to see a a higher low, which we have not seen uh, since uh, since uh, last June. Um, So that's what I would be looking for, a a rally and then some sort of higher low, which shows you that there's accumulation happening. And and then uh, I think there's potential for further upside there.
1: So so uh I'm gonna throw this question at you. I know you haven't had time to prepare for it, uh but I think with all your knowledge and experience you might be able to answer it. Uh and it's one it's something that keeps popping up here and again or now and again on the show. So the question is pretty simple. Is the market manipulated in your view? Ooh.
0: That is such a simple question, with which begs a very complex answer, Cam. That's a yeah. that's a that's a tough
1: one. <laughs> it is um, a tough one.
0: It is, you know, is it? Yeah, boy, I don't even know how I would say that. So, my short answer would be uh, yes, um, but the long answer would be yes, but it doesn't matter a ton. And I'll I'll try to explain it. Um, you know, is it on certain timeframes? I would say the shorter of a time frame that you operate on, you are more and more participating or or subject to. the the movements of of all the things that now are affecting short-term price movements. So a lot of algorithmic trading and the fact that, you know, prices break levels and then accelerate and you see a ton of volume come in, you know, you can see when there's programmatic buying and selling that comes in there. And I think the good news is there's value there because once you recognize key levels and you recognize when some of those systems may come in, I think there's, there's opportunity there because there's, there's movement. and, And as an investor, as a trader, the more volatility the better because because without volatility there's no, no real price action to, to benefit from. So as a as a technician, as a as a trader, you want the more volatility, I would argue, the better, because it gives you movements to, to measure. Um so so as a short term investor, I you know, I'm not a day trader, but if I was, I would be concerned about that impacting. It's no longer a bunch of individuals or, or institutions, you know, trading shares. You are you are are playing in a in a field that is not level and there are a lot of people with you know, faster data and faster execution that you will probably have. I would say as a, you know, looking at longer term investing, I would argue that a lot of that short term manipulation or short term dynamics and how they've changed, I would argue, you know, probably is is better for long term investing because I don't think it impacts it negatively. It provides plenty, plenty of liquidity. And overall, I don't think it's reflected in the long term trends. Those decision making, those biases that I've mentioned, I think, are still rampant on that longer term time frame. Um, I would also say then, I, I guess maybe one other qualifier is, you know, remember for, for me, as a, again, as a technical analyst, it's all based on transparency. And so the more transparent, the more liquid, the more, um, you know, widely uh, followed a market is, you could arguably have less advantage using technical analysis because there is more uh, of a level playing field. The markets are more efficient um, there's a lot more players of, with different motivations in, in place. If you look at less liquid markets, so um, you know more emerging markets and even more so frontier markets, um, this is where markets are less liquid, less transparent, and I would argue that behavioral biases tend to be more rampant because it is more like the U.S. or or more developed markets may have been decades ago, whereas much more of a level playing field, and I think individuals have a lot of potential opportunity to to disrupt or or, or to uh, to to identify um, uh, mispricing and identify uh, gaps between the value of things and where the prices are actually are at.
1: And and how did you? I suppose when did you sort of get to the point where you'd you'd say you'd answer yes to that question? What was there anything any sort of moment in your life where you were like, you know, you found out some information or somebody told you something, or is it sort of accumulation of things?
0: Really fair question. Um, it's probably been a, a a process over time that I've maybe become more to recognize that. But, I, you know, for me, I think it's the first time that I learned what percent of, you know, heard greater and greater percentages of trading that was being done, institutional trading that was done algorithmically. Um, and when there were hedge funds doing, you know, high frequency trading and, and things like that, that's one thing. Um, but when you you heard of larger trading desks, larger firms, you know, trading greater and greater positions using programs and not using discretionary trading by humans. For me, that started to convince me, okay, we're, you know, there's only so many ways that you can develop a program to trade off of the VWAP or something like that, which means the the, the, the chance that they are overlapping, uh, you know, becomes much greater. And I think we're going to see a lot of challenges as a result. I think that's probably the moment when I, when I started to hear over 50% of, you know, trading is being done uh, programmatically or or algorithmically. That that's probably when it when it triggered for me.
1: Cool. Well, look, um, so so how active are you in with your own with your own trading?
0: Right. So for me, you know, very limited. Only you know. So and so, my role is really as a strategist and and coach because um, you know, my my the upside of my career working at some of the larger firms and Fidelity was was the largest firm most recently. Fantastic exposure to people and their processes, but incredibly limited in terms of how, how I could trade my own capital. So I've, I've, I've often tried to limit how much I'm, I'm tinkering things. So I keep it, I actually keep it, keep it relatively boring for my own personal uh, capital and, and try as much as I can to use my insights to help, uh, to help clients make better
1: decisions. Cool. I'll, I'll ask some, uh, I'll ask some of the questions I usually ask at the end of the show. Um, So what would you recommend a retail trader spend the next month mastering, um, what what would it be? How could they go about, and how could they go about mastering it?
0: Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, for me, I, you know, the the the, the trick or, or the process I would ask people to um, to master is is sort of going back to the the checklist idea that we talked about. Um, I'm a I'm a student pilot, so I've spent a number of years trying to learn how to well, fly airplanes. And the first time I went up and went and saw how much, how thoroughly you reviewed all the mechanical systems in an airplane, also the communication, everything else. By the time you actually fired up the propeller and got in the air, you felt pretty confident that everything was working very well. And the reason why that works is because you go through a very disciplined, systematic process that's the same every time. So what I would challenge your listeners to do is think about when you're actually making a trade, when you're putting a position on, when you're, when, you're, when you're, you know, making, having an opinion and putting something into play, what are the steps that you're actually taking to make that decision? How are you documenting that? How systematically are those? And can you make it, can you upgrade that process? Is there something that you can add there um, to do it? But I, I think if you, if you think about your decision making, your decision tree, and, and again, the list, the, the checklist that you follow, I bet there, there are some gaps on there that you could focus on.
1: And the last question—I don't really want to leave it off on this—this this final question here. But this is a question I ask uh, all my guests. So, what sure. was the worst ever trade that you've uh, you've had?
0: You know, Cam, I was hoping you wouldn't
1: ask that. That's that's <laughs> always a good story. I,
0: it is a good story, and I and I hate it because you you know again as a behavioral uh, expert, right? You, the worst thing you don't want to do is sort of admit when you were wrong, but it, it happens. Um, you know what? I you know, sadly, I have plenty of things I, I could refer to. The one that probably comes to mind is, you know, again and, and again, I, I've not traded as much as I've been a strategist and I've been you know, advising investors on, on what to do. And I would say for me, it's the middle of 2013 and remaining uh, uh, or becoming bearish on the markets and, and remaining bearish way too long. And if you know your market history in the U.S., right, you had the you know the, the rally, the, the tech bubble into the late 90s, um, 2000, March of 2000 was the peak. I actually started in the industry in June of 2000, so it came in right afterwards. So the beginning, my first year or two as an investor were the bubble collapsing 9-11 when I lived in New York um, into the 2002 low. And I mean, it was a crazy, I mean, just a, a fascinatingly difficult period um, but as a result, I've been skewed more to the bearish side mentally because that's what I personally, that's how I was, when I was looking at charts for the first time, everything was kind of rolling over. Um, and so then the same thing happened as we rallied up 2004, 5, 6, fantastic, 2007 hits, we top out again, right about at the same level. So when we get to 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, we revisit those highs, I'm thinking, no problem, this is the next peak, it's lining up with resistance, here are all the signals that were overextended. And I very quickly developed a bearish thesis based on similar patterns, which what worked in 2000 and what worked in 2007. And so for me, you know, when that was wrong, I I, I knew about behavioral finance well before that, but that really solidified the importance of it when I saw how wrong I was there and and remained wrong, you know, in, in the summer of 2013 as we continued higher. And as we kept breaking to new highs, I realized that. My process needed to be focused way more on the evidence and identifying systematically what trends are in place and using that as a framework for decision making. So I, use, I have some long-term trend following models, intermediate-term trend following models that I that I developed using moving averages, and a lot of them came from that period and it was an acknowledgement that you know I turned bearish when things actually still held up very well. And so you know, for me, I think one of the best. Hopefully one of the best things I did was try to go back to that period and look at the at the macro level but also at the stock level. You know a lot of stocks actually looked still pretty good even though the market, you know, might have been extended. And so, you know, for me it really helped solidify what, you know, how I want to think about trend following uh, going forward. But thank you Ken for bringing up a painful painful period in my career.
1: <laughs> Don't worry, I've heard worse on the show. I've heard much I mean, worse. <laughs> yeah. um, right now so the the last question of the show uh before we wrap up now I'll give you a choice. Actually, you can either leave the guest with, uh, I suppose, a, a technique that they can use to to help with their psychology, or mm-hmm. perhaps um, that I suppose the one piece of advice that you'd recommend any anyone sort of take home after listening to this.
0: Oh, thanks for that question. Um, you know, so I, you know, the one one thing you could take away. I mean, hopefully, this has been a good. You know, discussion on on how you think and and what causes some of the decisions. You probably know, and your, you know, as I'm sharing stories, think about your own trading and where you might have you know held on to things too long or, or things like that. Might you know, I, if there's one thing to take away, I would ask your listeners to to think about what's the very first thing they look at in the morning, and I cannot overstate how important that is. And and to explain why is you know one of my one of my advisor clients and advisors in the U.S. If you're not familiar, right more long-term oriented, thinking about asset allocation, big picture, you know, helping people prepare for retirement. But a lot of them are trading in the short term to sort of help, you know, generate positive returns so people can retire gracefully down the road. Uh, and one of my clients was trying to, um, you know, was trying to do more long-term investing, was, was, was trading too actively and was trying to minimize some of that in one of her accounts in particular, so I asked her, right, well what, you know, tell me what's your process. It, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the day, what are you doing? And she said, "Well, I'm looking at, you know, the short term. Basically, it was a short-term market movement. It was it was, you know, this morning what are stocks doing up and down?" And I said, "Okay, hold on a second. So if you're long term, what should you be looking at to really orient yourself to the long-term trend?" And she's like, "Well, probably something about the long-term trend." And I said, "Well, that's that's right." And we completely flipped it. So the very last thing she was doing was looking at the long-term trend in equities versus bonds versus metals and all the different asset allocation decisions that she could make. We moved that to the very beginning of the process. So the very first thing she did every morning was look at the long-term trend in the big asset. So everything afterwards was was driven, was was primed with that perspective. And as a result, she naturally became much more oriented to the timeframe that she was trying to operate on. So again, if, if a lot of your Traders are, are short-term investors. I would, I would just have that question. What's the very first thing you look at, and is it the right thing to help put you in the mindset to be able to make the better decisions for the rest of the day?
1: Yeah, good advice, good advice. Now, um, before you wrap up, what's the best way for everyone to get hold of you? Um, Yeah, th- and thanks
0: again, Ken. This has been this has been really fun. I, I hope everyone's enjoyed uh, listening to the, to the conversation. Um, uh, two ways, I would say. So I write a blog called Market Misbehavior, and you can find it at marketmisbehavior.com where I – try to unpack some of these things, uh, themes about uh, investor decision-making, behavioral psychology, and, and a dose of technical analysis in there as well. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm at keller cmt, and uh, happy to engage people there
1: as well. Brilliant. Well, look, a big thank you to David for sharing with us today. Everything we've dis- discussed here, along with all the links uh, that he's just mentioned, will be in the show-, show notes. So to find them, simply jump onto tradingnut.com and search for David in the search box. Until next time, I wish all my listeners trading happiness and success. All right, folks, hope you enjoyed that interview with David. Now, look, if you want to see what we jumped on and what he showed me on the uh, the Zoom chat we had, then head over to the Trading Nut YouTube channel. There are links in your show description. So if you're on your podcast app on your phone, scroll up or click on the description button, link, whatever it is, and you should find links to the YouTube channel there. You'll also find links to the Trading Nut website where you can get access to a $9.99 Interview from the 52 Traders podcast on the house. All you've got to do is jump over to tradingnut.com. You'll find a short little survey to fill in, fill that in, and then you get your credit that you can spend in the, uh, the Trading Nut members area. Now, last but not least, uh, there's also funding options available. If you're looking to get funded as a trader, then head over to the site as well and you'll find some various funding options, options for futures. Uh, forex and stocks are coming soon as well so guys check that out and last but not least uh, if you are interested in automated trading i've got the robot traders club i've got the robot builders club i'm planning to do a webinar any day soon now so stay tuned for that on the email list Um, but for now you can jump on there we've got some strategies in the lab we're testing so if you want to check that out seven bucks in the door and you can have a look see around all right folks until next week have a great trading week and i'll see you in the markets